is 0208-687-7878 and of course you can hit us up on our socials on Twitter and on Instagram at Voice of Islam UK. Um, as we usually do, we are speaking about three topics uh, in today's show as well, three main topics after the after the roundup of the news. Um, the first uh, segment which is going to take up uh, to take us uh, up to the eight o'clock news is a new search begins unraveling the exciting boat gamma rate uh, burst and we'll we'll go through what this boat actually stands for in just a short while. Um, after the eight o'clock news, we're going to be speaking about counting from left to right, exploring the world of honeybees, um, and last but not least, we're going to be speaking about nightmares um, and are you experiencing terrifying, terrifying nightmares, uh, and how a recent study highlights a new treatment for this as well. So all that is yet to come as well uh, but before we do so of course we will be going through the uh, newspaper articles the headlines for the day and uh, of course the weather as well um usman how are you doing today i'm good summer how are you very good very good by the grace of allah the almighty um uh, well what's the what's the weather uh saying for today uh, not just for today but the the outlook up until uh, the end of the week so tonight uh, it will turn wet and windy in western areas as a band of rain sweeps in from the west ahead of uh, ahead of this to the east there will be a mix of low cloud clear spells and some light patchy rain tomorrow uh, it's gonna be windy with outbreaks of rain from the west the rain may be rather heavy and quite persistent in places turning drier and sunnier in northern ireland wales and southwest england later uh, Wednesday will be an unsettled and windy day again with blustery showers. There will also be drier sunnier intervals likely. Heavy rain moving into the southwest later on and overnight outbreaks of rain in northern areas on Thursday with sunshine and blustery showers to the south. Friday will see a few showers in the north and west but it will be drier with sunshine elsewhere. So a lot of uh, rain... Um, almost everywhere yeah maybe in northern Ireland and um, Wales a little bit sunnier mm-hmm. which is uh, unusual usually Wales is like the the worst weather mm-hmm. uh, after, after Scotland after, after Scotland, after Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah um, so so let's uh, go through the uh, the the newspaper headlines as well um, living wage boost and council tax rise fares <laughs> Um, so many of uh, today's uh, front pages carry reports about potential announcements in Thursday's autumn statement. The Times says Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is to prioritise support for poorest and boost the living wage from £9.50 an hour to about £10.40 an hour. According to the paper, 8 million households will also receive cost of living uh, payments worth up to £1,100 a year. 
and the average council tax bills are expected to exceed £2,000 a year for the first time, uh, according to the Daily Telegraph. It says plans by the uh, Prime Minister and his Chancellor to let town town halls rise the uh, Levi by 5% would mean households in Band D face paying up to £100 extra. Mm-hmm. The Guardian reports warnings from the Tory-run local authorities of Kent and Hampshire uh, uh, Hampshire, uh, to the Prime Minister that they will have declared bankruptcy within months. The paper also has a large splash on its front page as it launches a campaign with 30 newspapers and media organisations across the globe to present audiences with a common view of what needs to be done to stop the planet hurtling towards the point of no return. The I newspaper carries an exclusive interview with Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer, who says big business, uh, big businesses and wealthy individuals should be paying for the 60 billion black hole in public finances. Sir Keir says businesses, including Amazon and Google, should take the brunt of costs, not lower earners. The Daily Express attempts to reassure its readers over <coughs> over pensions. The paper carries comments by Rishi Sunak that pensioners are always at the forefront of my mind, quote-unquote, saying it sees this as the strongest signal yet that the Prime Minister will honour the triple lock pledge to increase payments. And the Daily Mirror carries an interview with the TV actor Ricky Tomlinson, who says... People will die if the triple lock pledge is axed in Thursday's autumn statement. The Metro uh, pictures Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky in the recently liberated city of Kherson, which had been under Russian occupation for eight months. Mr. Zelensky says re-seizing the key city in the Donbass signals the beginning of the end of the war. The paper also reports on the much-awaited deal between France and the UK to tackle the number of people crossing the channel. Nurses from overseas studying for UK qualifications to join the NHS workforce and mitigate staffing pressures were given one month's notice to move out of hostels, out of hotel, hotels and make way for asylum seekers. The Financial Times reports on the first in-person meeting between the leaders of two major global powerhouses, China and the United States. It reports that tensions in Taiwan were front and uh, center of talks between the two leaders in Bali, overshadowing Joe Biden and Xi Jinping's uh, push to improve relations. And The Sun focuses on an interview with Manchester United footballer Cristiano Ronaldo, The player talks about why he is no longer friends with his former colleague, Gary Neville. And uh, meanwhile, the Daily Star reports on a shortage of eggs and how that is impacting Britain's traditional breakfast. So the Daily uh, Telegraph, just a quick overview as well. The Daily Telegraph says local authorities are expected to be allowed to increase council tax by up to 5% to help fund social care. It suggests the move could result in the average household's bill exceeding £2,000 for the first time. The Daily Express uh, interprets a comment by Rishi Sunak who said the problems of pensioners are always at the forefront of his mind to be a signal that he will protect the pensions triple lock. Under the measure, 
the state pension is guaranteed to go up in line with whatever is highest, consumer price inflation, average earnings, or 2.5%. The paper supports the move with the headline, Rishi gets it, quote-unquote. The Daily Mail agrees, saying in its lead that there could be nothing crueler than leaving elderly households at the mercy of inflation. The, uh, but the Daily Mirror is less reassured by Mr. Sunak's words. And on its front page, the actor Ricky Tomlinson has a stark message for the government. Axe the triple lock and people will die. The paper's uh, editorial describes the royal family and, the, and uh, Brookside star as the true voice of reason arguing that his origins as a building site worker with no money uh, make him a powerful voice for our poor and elderly. <coughs> the Guardian leads on a warning uh, to Mr Sunak from two Conservative-run councils, Kent and Hampshire, that they could uh, be forced to declare bankruptcy within months because of soaring inflation. It says the leaders of the two authorities have written a joint letter to the Prime Minister saying the government needs either to improve funding or remove the legal obligation of ta- on town halls to provide services such as libraries. Uh, most of the papers uh, feature pictures of the US President Joe Biden meeting his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping at the G20 summit in Bali. The Times focuses on their promise uh, that there won't be a new Cold War with the headline, Xi and Biden give peace a chance. The Sun opts simply for nice to see you, but uh, the Financial Times states that the talks were overshadowed by what it calls Taiwan tensions. The, the website Political reports on what it calls a heated debate between MEPs in Brussels and the Qatari, uh, Qatari Labour Minister with uh, days to go before the start of the World Cup in, in the Gulf state. It says Ali bin Samih Al-Mari told the European Parliament Subcommittee on Human Rights that there had been a smear campaign against his country. Several committee members said they were backing a boycott of the tournament. Finally, the I reports on how scientists in New Zealand are trying to cut the amount of methane <clears throat> trying to cut the amount of methane that cows release when they belch. It, it explains that the greenhouse gas it uh, is at least 25 times more potent than carbon dioxide when it gets into the atmosphere. Ideas being assessed include a seaweed-based animal feed, a special harness which oxidizes the gas as it is expelled, and even uh, a vaccine to reduce what the paper calls cow burp potency. Um, So some very uh, interesting uh, things that we've seen in uh, the front pages today. Um, uh, Usman, was there anything that especially uh, caught your eye, uh, whether it's uh, in regards to the front pages, the headlines, or or, or even from within the the articles as well? Yeah, definitely. For me, the most concerning one is uh, uh, the the shortage of eggs here, because I I missed my breakfast today, (laughs) but usually I I want my eggs with my breakfast. Okay, okay. (laughs) And uh, other than that, there's... um, I'm also looking into the Cristiano Ronaldo. Apparently, he's he's a bit upset with Manchester United and 
his former colleague Gary Neville as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, speaking of football, the World Cup coming up in a few days. Uh, England is playing next Monday, I think. So just, you know, getting ready for that. Oh, le- what, less than a week away now? Yeah. Mm. So the the leagues have stopped. I think football uh, uh, people are going to, the players are going to Qatar. Mm-hmm. We're getting ready for the group stages. Okay, okay. And and uh, what what are you? Uh, how how hopeful are you for 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 England? Well, I'm not hopeful for England at all because <laughs> I'm supporting Germany. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. <laughs> R- wrong question to ask then. <laughs> yeah, no, no, um, my second choice would be England. Okay, but um, yeah, I think England does have a does have a good chance. Uh, mm-hmm. In my opinion, the, the top three teams probably, along with. Uh, Portugal, I believe, have uh, have a very good chance this uh, this year, mm-hmm. and uh, obviously I'm supporting Germany, so I hope Germany has a good chance. You, uh, you don't think Argentina's up there? Argentina, they, they've been they've been struggling for like ever since uh, I can remember. I, I mean, they they have been, but in recent times, I think they've really picked up the slack, and I think the the chemistry between the players uh, also is uh, is quite good, especially these days. Yeah, they've gone better, no doubt. Yeah. But I, I don't think they're good enough yet. Really? Not I mean, yet. I, 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 I hope. Uh, obviously, I want, uh, I want England to win. Uh, obviously, <laughs> of course. But at the same time, I, I also want Messi to, to at least, uh, take a, take a World Cup before he re- retires as well. So I'm, I'm yeah, yeah, in, definitely in, in two minds right now. But, uh, but yeah, e- either one, uh, and I'll be happy. Yeah, I'm also a big Messi fan. I hope, like, I always wanted him to win the World Cup. Yeah, I think he did deserve it in the in the past, but. I think it's difficult. It's getting difficult now. It's getting difficult for individually Messi, mm-hmm. but as a team, Argentina has improved. Yeah, but uh, I think there's there's better teams. There's better teams to win the World Cup. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's. I mean, let, let's see what happens, and and it, it will be, of course, very interesting uh, to 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 stay up to date with the with the World Cup as well. Um, obviously, there's something. Which uh, brings the 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 whole nation, uh, or, or not not even just the nation over here, but the the whole world together, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a sport which uh, which millions and uh, millions of people watch uh, across the globe, and um, it's uh, I mean the the beauty of football is that uh, um, I mean it's 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 a game loved by by many, isn't it? You don't need much to play. Um, and uh, it, I mean, all you need is a, a couple of friends, a couple, a couple of your mates, uh, and a ball. Yeah, yeah, essentially, isn't it? I mean, that's how. Uh, even in the the streets of Brazil, where where we have all these these stars um, in, in today's day and age, and of course, going back about a decade or two, um, all of these Ronaldinho, Ronaldo, Rivaldo, all of these, <laughs> um, they 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 began literally on on the streets of Brazil, playing with uh, uh, even like. Whatever they see on the streets, they didn't even have uh, balls at that time. Um, yeah. But but still, you see the the beauty of the game, uh, and it's something which uh, which uh, which is actually inspiring. That it, how how it mm. brings people together, isn't it? Yeah, there's so much talent in in on, in the streets, and I think there's different nations have their own uh, sports. I would say like yeah, yeah. Brazil has football. Like many many people in the streets they're amazing football players or skillers mm. uh, and Pakistan for example they have amazing cricket players Yeah. and uh, speaking of cricket just um, I'm, a bit, I'm a bit surprised like <laughs> just two days ago there was a World Cup yeah, yeah. Uh, England won the World Cup yeah. by the way for those who don't know mm. 
and the T20 World Cup and cricket, uh, and I don't see any, uh, you know, big celebration. But when it comes to football, yeah, you will you will hear people from the pubs from exactly. like miles away. Exactly. Um, yeah. E- so even though uh, it's quite odd uh, because uh, cricket is actually the the national sport um, yeah. uh, over here, but 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 like again, like you mentioned on Sunday, uh, England uh, we won the uh, the the T20, um, but there there wasn't much. Uh, uh, g- going on, isn't it? You'd, you'd expect yeah. a bit, uh, maybe a bit more uh, of a commotion in in a, in a positive uh, sense, uh, not negative. But uh, but but yeah, um, I mean, I, I guess it just depends on uh, what you yourself are interested in as well, isn't it? For me, yeah, for instance, for true. me, like I'm like I was keeping up to date with the score because it was uh, Pakistan and in- and England, isn't it? Yeah. Two of the most important countries uh, for <laughs> us, basically. Um, but uh, but but yeah, because I'm not really interested in it myself, so I wasn't really following it. Mm. But but again, you are right. When it comes to, to comes to, when it comes to football, um, it's a it's a completely different league, isn't it? Yeah, I think I mean England did did kind of create football. Mm. They did. Yeah, yeah. Well, mm. cricket as well, but football as well. But. Mm. Well, apart from that, I have a short summary of the of the latest news. Mm-hmm. UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak criticizes Russia's barbaric war in Ukraine as the G20 gets underway in Bali. On the plane over, Sunak said China posed a system systematic challenge to the UK but stopped short of calling it a national security threat. Earlier on Tuesday, uh, Ukraine's Vladimir Zelensky appeared to the G20 via video link calling for the war to be stopped. The meeting is expected to take steps to address food security affected by Russians Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a U.S. official has told reporters. On Monday, Joe Biden said he was not looking for conflict between the U.S. and China after meeting Xi Jinping. Meanwhile, Xi warned Biden against crossing a red line on Taiwan, according to Chinese state media. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some very interesting uh, news like um, that, that we've gone through, and of course there's many other uh, articles which uh, you can read within your own time as well. Um, but with that, we're going to be going to our first um, a topic for the day, our first main topic. Uh, like I said earlier, we're going to be speaking about three topics. Um, the new, uh, the, the the first uh, um, article that we're going to be going through, uh, the, and this is going to take up uh, take us up to the eight o'clock news, is how there's a new search uh, which has begun, unraveling the exciting boat gamma array burst, and boat obviously stands for brightest of all time um, over here. After the eight o'clock news, we're going to be speaking about uh, the world of honeybees, exploring um, what they are, what uh, different types there are, what they do, and the benefits as well um, and the title over here is Counting from Left to Right Exploring the World of Honeybees um, and last but not least are you experiencing uh, terrifying nightmares a recent study highlights a new treatment for nightmares and that is what we're going to be going through in the last segment so the the gist of uh, this first topic and remember um, if you would like to get involved in any one of these conversations, then uh, then then please feel free to give us a call. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you, um, and of course you can hit us up on our socials on Twitter and on Instagram as well at Voice of Islam UK. 
So a new search begins, unraveling the exciting boat gamma ray burst. Uh, on the 9th of October uh, last month, um, astronomers recorded the boat brightest of all time gamma ray explosion. According to astronomers, this kind of gamma ray burst occurs when a giant star explodes in a supernova. This leaves behind a black hole. What tends to happen is that the explosion itself creates an incredible amount of light and then the supernova also presents an afterglow, uh, but uh, much dimmer in comparison. And in this seg segment, we'll be unraveling this exciting discovery and discussing what such an event means for the future. Um, so if we could just uh, go through what this is um, uh, for, for the benefit of our listeners, we've given a, just a quick summary and a quick uh, overview. But, but what is this actually, Osman? Uh, so the brightest gamma ray burst <coughs> ever recorded recently lit up a distant galaxy and astronomers have nicknamed it the boat you know like the goat the greatest of all time but this was the brightest of all time we um we use the boat emoji a lot when we're talking about it on the messaging app slack says astronomer jillian um rest in a yard of northwestern university in evanston gamma ray bursts are energetic explosions that go off when a massive star dies and leaves behind a black hole or neutron star the collapse sets off jets of gamma rays zipping away from the poles of the former star. If those jets happen to be pointed right at Earth, astronomers can see them as gamma ray bursts. This new burst, officially named GRB-221009A, was probably triggered by a supernova giving birth to a black hole in a galaxy about 2 billion light years from Earth, researchers announced October 13. Um, astronomers think it released as much energy as roughly three suns, converting all of their mass to, to pure energy. And at the time when it went off, it looked kind of weird to us, says uh, Penn State um, astrophysicist Jamie Ke uh, Kenya, who is the head of science operating for SWIFT. The blast's position in the sky seemed... Uh, seemed to line up with the plane of the Milky Way. So at first, Kenya and colleagues thought it was within our own galaxy and so unlikely to be something as dramatically energetic as a gamma ray burst. If a burst like this went off inside, inside the Milky Way, it would be visible to the naked eye, which wasn't the case here. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we when we go to the Holy Quran, of course, it uh, it states uh, it's so many uh, on so many different occasions, uh, and not just the Holy Quran, but the narrations of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And we can see the importance of the acquisition of knowledge uh, when it comes to these main sources that we have. Um, and if we turn to chapter twenty, verse one hundred and fifteen, it states. Exalted then is Allah, the true King, and uh, be not impatient for the Qur'an, ere its revelation is completed unto thee. But only say, O my Lord, increase me in knowledge. Again, if we go to uh, chapter 39, verse 10 of the Holy Qur'an, Allah the Almighty states that, Say, are those who know equal to those who know not? And of course, from this verse, 
we can clearly see how it highlights the elevated status of education and those who gain knowledge in the eyes of Allah the Almighty. Islam advocates the emphasis, uh, and emphasizes as well the importance of the acquisition of knowledge. I mean, uh, over here on the Voice of Islam radio station, many of our regular listeners will be well aware as well um, when it comes to the traditions and the the, the verses, um, when it comes to uh, this topic of uh, acquiring knowledge, um, because this is something which we often repeat here um, on the Voice of Islam radio station as well. Um, And the Holy Prophet of Islam, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is recorded to have said that the word of wisdom is the lost property of a Muslim, so that wherever he finds it, he should take it as he is most entitled to it. Uh, On another occasion, the Holy Prophet of Islam, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he said, seek knowledge, though it may be found in a country as far away as China. And of course, I mean, we, we, we always mention this as well, and uh, we can see that going back um, almost 1,500 years ago now, how difficult it must be to, to travel even from one country to another country. But when we're talking really? about from Saudi Arabia all the way to China, um, I mean, this is something which which uh, is not a matter of days or weeks, uh, but even months or, or, or years it could take um, for for someone to go through such a strenuous task of traveling from uh, the from Saudi Arabia all the way to 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 China. Um, uh, but still, the Holy Prophet of Islam, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, put so much emphasis uh, on the acquisition of knowledge that he said that even if you have to do this, uh, then you should you should do so without uh, any sort of hesitation. This is, this shouldn't be uh, a problem, or you shouldn't think of it as a burden, but rather you should uh, actually go and uh, do this as well. Um, just one more tradition that we'll uh, quickly share as well. Um, and that is that uh, the Holy Prophet of Islam, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that seeking of knowledge is obligatory upon every Muslim man and a woman. Uh, so, of course, there's no distinction there. And we can see that the importance uh, of, uh, um, uh, of acquiring knowledge is uh, mandatory upon every one of us, uh, upon every uh, boy and upon every girl as well. Um, more, yes, Omar, um, yes. Before we go to our guests, I'd like to um, I remember the important point in the Holy Quran in chapter twenty-one, verse thirty-one. Mm-hmm. Um, Allah the Almighty has told us, and the Holy Prophet prophesied this uh, fourteen hundred years ago. The verses as follows: Have the faithless not regarded that the heavens and the earth were interwoven, and we unravelled them, and we made every living thing out of water? Will they not then have faith? So the words used here was that it's speaking of the Big Bang, fourteen hundred years ago. Fakanata ratkan fafataqna huma. That means that we exploded it, hmm. and this is exactly the theory the the scientists have hmm. uh, found today, have uh, researched many 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 years ago. And uh, you're talking about you know in, in those times traveling was hard. Yeah, think of that was within the the scope of the earth. This yeah, was something outside. which was still fathomable. Yeah, this was it? something something like extraordinary to yeah. those people. Mm. And the Holy Quran has prophesied this fourteen hundred years ago that the Big Bang theory, yeah, which we um, got to know a few 
decades ago mm-hmm. that that theory in fact was already in the Quran and another prophecy right not prophecy but another scientific fact where we made every living thing out of water even this fact scientists have discovered only a few years ago that living the the, the basic necessi- necessity for living is water this is why they're searching for water in in on mars on different pal- planets yeah. because if you have water this is the the essence of the creation of life mm, most certainly most certainly uh, and we'll speak about that uh, in a bit more detail in just a short while but before we do so we do have with us on the line our first guest for the show professor carol mundell uh, carol mundell is a professor of extra galactic uh, galactic astronomy at the university of bath her research focuses on cosmic black holes and gamma ray bursts her career highlights includes uh, in, uh, include a Royal Society Wolfson Research Merit Award, as well as receiving an FDM, Every Woman in Technology Woman of the Year. And she holds the Hiroko Sherwin uh, Chair in Extragalactic Astronomy as well. Assalamu peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. Thank you. Lovely to join you. You're welcome. Uh, and thank you for being with us. Um, can you explain to our listeners, please, what, what your role is as a professor of extragalactic galactic astronomy and an observational uh, astrophysicist as well, please? Yes, certainly. So as a scientist, I use the scientific method to understand nature. And in my case, I use telescopes and technology on the ground and in space to study the nature of the universe. As you said in your introduction, my speciality is in studying black holes and extreme physics in the universe. Um, A a professor really just is a title that recognizes my love of expertise. That's, uh, I'm an academic, so I'm at the University of Bath. And as part of my role there, I teach and educate the next generation of scientists and also use my time to do research and to mentor young researchers. Uh, to, to really understand the laws of physics and to apply those laws of physics to the cosmos. And really, it's it's a very exciting time to, to be in this field, I think, because we live at a time, I think, where we have unprecedented technology that covers across the electromagnetic spectrum so we can really unlock the mysteries of the universe. Thank you, Professor. Being an expert in uh, gamma ray bursts, how do you go about finding or detecting them? Well, this is, again, really a a relatively new field, technologically speaking, because gamma ray bursts are very short flashes, very intense flashes of high-energy gamma rays on the sky. They were discovered in the late 1960s, early 70s, um, actually discovered by U.S. military satellites originally that were monitoring the Earth, so they were looking down on the Earth and monitoring Mm -hmm. for violations of the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. Um, And scientists discovered these flashes in their detectors, and they discovered that they were actually coming from the sky. And so for many decades, actually, it was very difficult to make progress in this field because we were unable to identify exactly where on the sky these very high-energy flashes were coming from. And so over many years, there was development of technology for satellites to study these gamma-ray flashes. And the first breakthrough really came in the 1990s when we discovered they were coming from anywhere on the sky. And the first X-ray afterglow was discovered. And so this was a a much more (coughs) long-lived signal, lasted for maybe Mm -hmm. 10, 12 hours. And this let other telescopes, particularly in the visible band of the spectrum, find the first host galaxy and the first optical light. And when we find optical light, then we can do something very special. We can split it up into the colors of the rainbow, and that helps us to measure the distance to the object. 
And so the way we do this nowadays, we have a very exciting suite of satellites above the Earth's atmosphere, one of them in particular, a NASA satellite called SWIFT. It catches the gamma ray flash and actually gives a very accurate position puts that signal down to telescopes on the ground and my team have a suite of robotic telescopes around the world and along with many other astronomers around the world we then look at that part of the sky to start to catch the light from the rest of the electromagnetic spectrum so we discover the burst then we follow it up and then we can actually do some of the physics understand where Mm -hmm. it is and understand its behavior I mean, it's, it's, it's extremely fascinating. Um, Very uh, complex. Uh, yeah, um, and, and interesting as well. And I'm sure many of our listeners uh, are, are glued onto their, to their their headphones or, or their cars, car radios, wherever they're listening, um, because of the, the 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 nature of all of this. Um, what has been your most exciting discovery? Do you think uh, related to gamma ray bursts? I think that's that's a great question, and I think it's a quite a hard choice actually because there mm. are, there have been many. Um, I think sometimes because it's such a fast moving field. I mean, there was even a, a burst in October, which was termed the the brightest um, gamma ray burst ever. So I think it is a field of superlatives. We find these very bright objects. We find the most luminous objects, the most distant objects. For me personally, the work that my team has pioneered has been trying to understand what powers these prodigious um, explosions because they are the most intense luminous explosions in the universe. And (laughs) what we did was we developed some very novel technology for our robotic telescopes, um, a thing called a polarimeter, and this measures a special property of the light called polarization. And the reason that we wanted to do this was because the theorists had suggested that magnetic fields might be the key to understanding the energetics of these powerful explosions. And magnetic fields are incredibly difficult to measure in the universe. We still don't know the nature and the origin of cosmic magnetism. And so my team built these novel polar emitters, particularly for our robotic telescope that was built in Liverpool, but actually now is out in the Canary Islands on top of the mountain. And we were able to make the first direct measurement of a magnetic field in a gamma ray burst afterglow, which proved that there are large-scale ordered magnetic fields, almost like corkscrews, uh, winding around, focusing and accelerating the material that is blasted off when the black hole is formed. And when this beam of material that's being blasted off points towards the Earth, we get a bright flash of gamma rays. So I think that, for me, was all the pieces of the jigsaw came together, the novel technology, the, the theoretical predictions, and then the exciting observation in real time. And we made the, the earliest discovery as well as the first discovery of polarization. And mm-hmm. in 20, so 2012, we actually made uh, the discovery of the highest degree of polarization, which for people who understand uh, the physics of light, it was 40% polarized, which was, was outstanding and told us an awful lot about the magnetic fields. Mm-hmm. A question came to my mind here. Um, you probably heard about this this boat, the brightest of all time. It created a black hole after the supernova. So I've always heard that black holes, they, they are so strong, they even suck in the light. So how comes light escapes and comes all the way to us? Despite yeah, that's that black a really hole. good question. So what we know about in the universe, I've studied supermassive black holes at the centre of galaxies as well, and you're right that the, the idea of a, a black hole is that it's a region of space inside which the pull of gravity is so great that nothing can escape, not even light. So if you do fall over the event horizon of the black hole, then that's true. But what we know when black holes form in the universe, they often form from material that has um, some rotational energy or angular momentum. 
and when things are spinning it's very hard to if you like fall over that that last stage of of, of survival and there's lots mm-hmm. of energy the magnetic fields as i say are there and what they do is they pull off the material that has not had the unfortunate fate of falling into the black hole. And so it's the light from that material that's just outside the black hole that is, is the stuff that we detect with our telescopes. And so that light from the outside material <laughs> that's mm-hmm. very hot and very energetic is really our signpost to, to find where these black holes are. Mm, interesting. And uh, lastly, you were the first woman chief scientific advisor at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, as well as currently being the president of the Science Council as the first female to hold the position. What would your advice be to girls who are interested in this field, which is um, rather male dominant, I would say? Well, first of all, I would say um, follow your passion, study hard and also find good mentors and role models. I've had great mentors who were men and women. You're right, there are there are still too few girls and women coming into the physical sciences and engineering. But they, they are great careers, and I'm doing a, a lot of work with colleagues at the Science Council, as I did also in the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, to help girls and women around the world have equitable access to education throughout their lives so that they can pursue these exciting careers. Um, and make these fundamental discoveries in the universe or change their communities um, or develop more understanding and, again, go back and educate the next generation. It's very interesting. And do you do you think... Um, so um, from an Islamic perspective, we, we don't differentiate between men and women and you shouldn't in any other way. But do you do you feel, um, being, a, being a woman, do you feel a difference at your workplace or... Do you feel a, a different kind of energy or do you think everyone is supportive and this is not a case? So I think it depends on the workplace. Um, I think I've had, I think both experiences of many women and indeed some men um, will have found. I think sometimes it's difficult to be to be different. Sometimes it's wonderful. You feel like a trailblazer. Um, you're there at the forefront, as you say. I've, I've had a number of firsts in my career and it's a great privilege to be um, the first female to hold new positions. And I think sometimes that can, can be quite a challenge. And so the people around you maybe haven't had that similar challenge and have less understanding of the barriers that you actually have to remove or you have to tackle in order to be successful and progress. And so really my hope is that men and women help remove those barriers for boys and girls, show that both boys and girls are equally able to study science and to enjoy it and to do well and that we shouldn't, you're right, we shouldn't hold prejudices that say, you know, girls can't do science for whatever mm-hmm. reason, can't have careers. And so that there's no reason why boys and girls can't both um, enjoy, do science together and treat one another with respect in the workplace. Most certainly, most certainly. Uh, thank you for, for that, Professor uh, Mundell, for being with us, for answering uh, our questions and sharing your insight into this extremely important and, and fascinating uh, topic as well. Thank you once again, and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. That was Professor Carol Mundell who is a professor of extragalactic astronomy at the University of Bath. 
Her research focuses on cosmic black holes and gamma ray bursts. Her career highlights include a Royal Society Wolfson Research Merit Award as well as receiving an FDM Every Woman in Technology Woman of the Year. And she holds the Hiroko Sherwin Chair of in uh, Extra Galactic Astronomy as well. Um, and she was sharing uh, her thoughts with us and answering our questions. Um, like I said, some, some very interesting uh, things that we saw um from 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 that conversation isn't it um before going further and speaking uh, more about uh, this uh, this um the 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 boat gamma ray burst um we are going to be listening to a quick uh, audio clip of uh, his holiness the fourth head of the ahmadiyya muslim community in which he answered answered the question uh, of whether or not the Quran refers to the phenomenon of a black holes. The Holy Quran describes this phenomena in two places. That is the one place where the black hole phenomena has been explained. In the old commentaries, you will find the word Ratkan translated as uh, a sort of nebula, a cloud or smoky, large, huge, shapeless, smoky appearance. This is also correct. But the true meaning of Ratkan is exactly the opposite. And the Arabic dictionaries explain it as something so tightly sewed that nothing can escape. So, both these stages of universe which have been scientifically proved have been discussed, have been mentioned in the Holy Quran under the one single word. And it's the most beautiful thing about the Holy Quran that it has the maximum economy of words and uh, maximum meaning can be drawn, drawn from those words. So, Kanata Ratkan means the heaven and earth both were at one stage like a small ball with which the children play which is sewn so tightly that nothing within can escape and entirely everything is enclosed therein and secondly it says that both the skies and heavens were in a state of nebula to which we gave shape later on so fatah is also applicable to both these meanings of the word Ratkan. Fatak means to break open suddenly. And Fatak also means to make distinctions so that things precipitate and uh, appear to be distinct from each other. So how beautiful language is the, is the language of Holy Quran that in one short sentence it explains the entire phenomena of creation. So Ratkan is the thing which is uh, in one sense uh, the black hole because uh, the definition of black hole is this that nothing can escape it. No radiation, no sound, no news, so much so that nobody knows what is inside and what the size is. The size has been calculated by some scientists, some mathematicians to be the tiniest that you can imagine, but it is just a guesswork. Nobody can say with definiteness how tiny that black hole is, 
but they can say this much that the entire universe can be contracted to that size and that size once it's contracted encompasses everything and doesn't exude anything with the result that it is a thing without property. There is no chemical property or physical property or any other property which you can ascribe to that thing called black hole. And if you define nothingness, that is exactly the lack of property. Anything which has no property does not exist. So it is non-existence, a form of non-existence. Some people, sometimes scientists have gone so far as to opine that that black hole disappears on one planet, on one, uh, in one dimension and reappears as a universe in another dimension of which we have no concept. So they have been uh, offering very interesting uh, possibilities, but uh, we are not concerned with them. We are concerned with the total disappearance of the universe into a black hole which is so tightly sewed that no property can uh, um, be observed from outside or permitted to be observed from outside. Then the Holy Quran says in another verse, the phenomena, mentions the phenomena of recreation, recreation of the universe, and also the phenomena of its re-disappearance. Now first it is mentioned as, as disappearance. It says that Kanata Madhvini the second verse is about free right hand. That was His Holiness the fourth head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mizat Tahir Ahmad. May Allah have mercy on his soul. Answering the question of whether or not the Quran refers to the phenomenon of black holes. And um, and uh, with that, we'll be going to uh, um, what this all means for the future. Um, of course, we we went through um, uh, a little bit about what Islam teaches us in regards to the acquisition of knowledge. Um, uh, but before speaking with our our esteemed guest, um, uh, before uh, listening to the audio clip as well, Professor Carol Mundell. Um, but uh, what does all of this mean? What does this gamma ray burst mean for the future in terms of uh, both research and uh, actual further discoveries as well, uh, Usman? The explosion was a long gamma ray burst cosmic event where a massive dying star unleashes powerful jets of energy as it collapses into a black hole or um, maybe a neutron star. This particular burst was so bright that it, it oversaturated the, the Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope, an orbiting NASA telescope designed in part to observe such events. There was so many photons per second that they couldn't keep up. Uh, this is what Andrew Levin said, an uh, astrophysicist at Redboud University in the Netherlands. The burst even appears to have caused Earth's 
um, ionosphere, the upper layer of Earth's atmosphere, to swell in size for several hours. The fact you can change Earth's um, ionosphere from an object halfway across the universe is pretty incredible. Um, so how did it get here? One possibility is that following the gamma ray burst, a high energy photon was converted into an action-like particle. Um, actions are hypo, um, hypo, hypothesized lightweight particles that may explain dark matter. Action-like particles are thought to be slightly heftier. High energy photons <clears throat> could be converted into such particles by strong magnetic fields such as the ones around an imploding star and the action like particle would then travel across the vastness of space unim unimpaired as it arrived at our galaxy magnetic fields would convert it back into a photon which would then make its way to earth in in the week following the initial detection multiple teams of uh, astrophysicists suggested this mechanism in papers uploaded to the scientific reprint site arxiv.org it would be a very incredible discovery said Giorgio Gelanti an astrophysicist at the National Institute for Astrophysics in Italy so the the future looks bright I would say mm. so uh, they're saying that this uh, this can change such a big and heavy impact on the earth it, ch it changed the ionosphere of the earth which is the outer layer. So in the future, if if um, they could use this research, you know, to, to look more into not just the stars outside, but again to the atmosphere of the Earth closer to us. Yeah, yeah. And, and also by exploring the universe at these high energies, uh, scientists can search for new physics, uh, testing theories and performing experiments that are not possible in Earth-bound laboratories as well, isn't it? Um, oddly enough, visible light to which human eyes are sensitive is the smallest band of radiation. To our eyes, what we see seems like the entire universe, yet there is so much more out there. Different types of objects in the universe emit different types of radiation. Our sun is a, a rather obvious source of visible light, but it also glows in radio waves, infrared, ultraviolet light, and X-rays as well. Some objects emit only radio waves or only X-rays. Uh, this is why it is important to study the universe with various kinds of space observatories. ESA's uh, integral satellite is looking at the universe uh, mainly concentrating on gamma rays these are produced by spectacular events in the universe such as stars exploding uh, matter falling into black holes and celestial objects colliding by colliding uh, by collecting uh, gamma rays astronomers are able to see these violent uh, um, events and can judge exactly how they shape the universe uh, for example some chemical elements are created uh, during explosions in which in which uh, individual stars blow themselves to pieces. The new chemicals leave gamma ray fingerprints in the fireball for astronomers to find. And by studying these, Integral uh, is, uh, is piecing together how these chemicals are created. 
I mean, um, th- there's so much uh, to learn and there's so much to see from uh, uh, all of this. And the Holy Quran is, of course, a guideline for research. God is the creator of the universe. And he revealed that the Holy Quran uh, is for the entire mankind, for them to read and for them to acquire knowledge from. The Holy Quran contains countless pearls of wisdom for those who want to quench their thirst with knowledge. As Allah the Almighty states within the Holy Quran in chapter 2 verse 3 that this is a perfect book. There is no doubt in it and it is a guidance for the righteous. Um, in the book, uh, Invitation to Ahmadiyyat, the second worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazim is the Bashir Din Mahmoud Ahmad, may Allah be pleased with him, um, writes, Science is concerned with nature, the handiwork of God. The Quran is the word of God, and there can be no contradiction between the two. I mean, oftentimes we, we see that scientists are um, uh, would be either atheists or they would not believe uh, in God, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, um, for for whatever reason, and and majority of the time, the reason would be that they believe, or uh, pr- predominantly, I think the world is under such a notion. Um, the majority of the people are under such a notion that they f- they think and they believe that uh, science and religion cannot uh, go together. They cannot go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. But uh, little do they know, uh, and we can see from this quote as well of uh, the second caliph of the Muslim community, that these two things actually go in perfect harmony of one another. And uh, uh, we see as we progress and as we see technological advancements um, and not just tech, uh, technology based but any sort of advancements that we see within science or, or any other field as well um, we can see that uh, um, slowly and gradually we learn uh, or come to know about the truths within the Holy Quran and what Islam has taught us over 1400 years ago now um, it, it, for instance, you mentioned uh, in 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 regards to the Big Bang th- uh, theory as well, yeah. um, and so many other things that they they weren't even conceptual um, uh, uh, almost fifteen hundred years ago. You couldn't even think or, or fathom or or even I mean even if if it was written right there before you and it, and it was within the Holy Quran, yeah. but even if it, it, if the the companions of the or the Muslims saw that okay this is what uh, Islam is teaching us or this is what God has revealed to the Holy Prophet of Islam may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, um, they would never understand uh, because of the 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 the. The, the technology of that time and because of the understanding of that time. But now, going forward 1,400 years, 1,500 years, we can see that, oh, this is what the Holy Quran had meant at that time. And it's just astonishing to see that uh, that this uh, that that the, the 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 reality of this of going of science and religion going hand in hand is actually that science will never be up to date. Um, with what the what the Quran teaches, and uh, 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 unless obviously we get closer to the end of time, isn't it? Um, and that is why, with the the advancements of science, we will understand God better as well. And we're going to be taking a short break. Here's the news. Allah, 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 Allah. 
You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the breakfast show here on the Voice of Islam radio station. Um, the, just a quick time check for you. It is two minutes past eight on Tuesday, the 15th of November, 2022. Um, if you are just tuning in, um, in the first segment, we were discussing um, the boat, uh, uh, the unraveling the exciting boat gamma ray burst, which was the brightest of uh, all time. Um, now, uh, from, counting from left to right, exploring the world of honeybees is the topic that we're just uh, about to get into. Um, and uh, uh, we are going to be going through another uh, article as well. Um, and that is in regards to nightmares. Uh, if you're experiencing ter- terrifying nightmares, uh, that is definitely something you'd want to listen into. Um, and remember, this is your radio station and we'd love for you to get involved. So if you do want to uh, to speak about any one of these topics um, and get involved within the discussions that we're having, then please feel free to do so. The number for you, as always, is 0208-687-7878. And of course, you can hit us up on our socials and on Twitter uh, on, uh, on, on and on Instagram, Twitter, Twitter and Instagram um, at Voice of Islam UK. Um, so the, for the first time, a recent study has found that bees order numbers from left to right in ascending order. And in this segment, we'll be delving deep into the life of honeybees whilst also discussing some of the healing properties that products produced by them include. So, um, Osman, what is this uh, uh, all about? What have we learned from this, uh, this, this article? So the latest findings add to the theory that animals, including humans, naturally arrange things in certain order even without being able to count like little children so western research has found that even before children learn to count they start organizing growing quantities from from left to right this is referred to as the mental number line however the opposite direction has been found in people from cultures that use an arabic script which uh, which reads from right to left the subject is still being debated between those who think the mental number line has innate character and those who say it is cultural. That's what Martin Gurfa said. So Martin Gurfa is a professor at the Research Center on Animal Cognition at Paul Sabatier University in Toulouse, France. The the he, he, he led a study which was published last month in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. The aim of the study was to further investigate recent evidence that newborn babies and some some uh, vertebrate animals, including primates, organize numbers from left to right. He wanted to do this by seeing if this was true for insects also via an experiment on bees. So this study uh, found that bees headed to the left to get smaller number of items and to the right to get a larger number of items. Bees order numbers in increasing size from left to right. A study has shown for the first time supporting the much debated theory that this direction is inherent in all animals, including humans. So the question arose that if animals do in fact think of numbers from left to right, why is this not true for all humans? 
And in regards to this, Gurfa answered uh, by saying it was more complicated than directly choosing between nature and nurture. Even if the mental number line is innate, culture can still modify, modify it, even reverse it, or on the contrary, advance advance it, he said. So beasts, on the other hand, have to stick to, the, to, to what nature dictates, and uh, hence that's why they sort things from left to right. Hmm. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, uh, we 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 can see um, there, there's so much more that we actually want to discuss and get through as well. Um, but 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 like you said, yes, yeah, so some very interesting uh, facts that we can see from this. Um, to get more of an insight uh, in regards to this, we're going to be speaking to our first guest for this segment. We do have with us on the line Professor Dave Golson, uh, who is a professor of biology at University of Sussex, uh, specializing in bee ecology. Uh, he has published more than 350 scientific uh, articles on the ecology and conservation of uh, bumblebees and other insects, plus seven books, including the Sunday Times bestseller, uh, bestsellers, actually, is Sting in the the Tale from 2013, The Garden Jungle 2019, and Silent Earth uh, from last year. Gosen uh, founded the Bumblebee Conservation um, uh, Trust in 2006, a charity which has grown to 12,000 members. In 2015, he was named um, a number eight in BBC Wildlife uh, Magazine's list of the uh, top 50 most influential people in, uh, in conservation. He is an ambassador for the UK Wildlife Trust uh, and President of Pesticide Free Scotland. Um, Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. Good morning and thank you for for being with us. Um, we're speaking about a very interesting uh, topic. Um, for, for now, we're just speaking about the counting from left to right, exploring the world of honeybees, but we're going to be going into the healing properties in just a short while as well. Um, but before we do so, what is the social structure and character of bees? So um, bees are related to wasps and ants, and all of them live in, in these colonies that consist of a, it's a big group of sisters essentially mm-hmm. um, all looking after their mum the queen mm-hmm. um, and helping her rear more and more sisters and it's, it's actually one of the most successful kind of um, strategies on the planet there are um, uh, far more social insects than any other kind of insects um, so, uh, there are 25,000 species of bee which most people don't realize wow. so it's uh, it obviously works and uh, um, they they're also the main pollinators of course of uh, 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 three quarters of the crops we grow so we uh, uh, have a, a strong vested interest in looking after these little creatures yeah. <laughs> yeah speaking of pollen like how how do bees interact with flowers how do they choose the good ones or the bad ones yeah, so um, there's a ho- people have spent many years studying this. They uh, they have an innate preference for colours. Mm-hmm. So they're the eyes of bees are most sensitive to purples and yellows and ultraviolet that they can see that we can't. And so they tend to prefer flowers that that match those colours. Um, but then they 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 explore and they visit flowers and they really quickly learn which ones. Uh, give them the most reward uh, and they they mm-hmm. have excellent memories and so they'll then return to that particular flower and they remember the shape, the colour, the smell 
the details of that flower and they'll also they, they memorize where the patches of flowers are so that they can accurately navigate to That's and amazing. from mm. I the, mean, uh, the flowers very intelligent uh, animals <laughs> isn't it i mean when it comes to this uh, something uh, such a small um, a being um, being able to memorize um, uh, and and remember and remind itself that this is a good flower and come back to it uh, at a later stage as well. Um, I mean, what's what's the structure of their brain like? Are, are, are they are they really that intelligent, or is this just one quality that they have? Well, so I mean, their brains are obviously tiny compared to ours, so, mm-hmm. um, uh, much smaller than a, than a grain of rice. Uh, they do have, though, the part of the brain responsible for learning and memory is is enlarged, and it's it's quite odd. It's shaped like little mushrooms. It's called mushroom bodies, uh-huh. um, and that's that's the bit of the brain that's sort of responsible for for learning. Um, and they also they have more connections between their nerve cells, a higher density than than we do. So although their brain is is much smaller, it's it's kind of you get more value for the for the space there is. Um, it's kind of more powerful, uh, as it were, for its size. Um, uh, and compared to other insects, they are undoubtedly the kind of intellectual giants of the insect world. They're, they're far more intelligent than, uh, than most other species. Mm. And and also, you know, when it comes to the hexagonal shape as well of um uh, the, uh, the um, uh, of of the uh, beehives of the beehives and stu- stuff. I mean, how we we can see that that's the most uh, um, th- that's uh, it's the shape in which none of the uh, the nectar and none of uh, anything which is stored within it gets wasted, and it's it's done in such a beautiful way. Um, how did the the uh, how how did this come about? That's a good question. I, I mean, it's it's something they do innately. They don't work it out for themselves yeah. each, each time. It's something that's evolved over... Uh, we don't know exactly when it first appeared. Uh, bees have been around for about 120 million years. Yeah. Um, uh, they evolved back in the age of the, the dinosaurs. Um, but exactly which was the first bee to, to make a, a hexagonal comb, we don't know because they don't leave fossils, uh, or at least the insects do, but the comb doesn't um, so so the origins are slightly mysterious but at some point they solved the riddle of how to most efficiently store their food and rear their offspring and uh, mm-hmm. obviously it works yeah that's amazing another another question so I'm scared of being stung by a bee <laughs> so what's what's the secret poison when they sting and uh, what is the bee venom what, what is it composed of what's how do they? Yeah, so so the sting. Only female bees have a sting, but unluckily, all the workers in the nest are are female, as I mentioned earlier. So most mm. of them can sting. Mm-hmm. The it, it, the stinger evolved from the egg laying tube <laughs> um, originally, um, uh, but it's evolved to to uh, into a sting, so they can defend the nest against predators or you know bears or whatever creatures might choose to try and steal the honey. Um, and the venom itself is a really complicated mixture of proteins and histamines, basically designed to hurt as much as possible and create a maximum <laughs> reaction from our from our flesh. Um, uh, and it, I, obviously, it works. It doesn't do us any great harm. But it, uh, boy, if when you get stung, um, it really does. 
yeah. uh, make you hop about <laughs> and swear a bit. <laughs> but don't you think that this, the stinging off the bee is more painful than the, the after effect? Well, that's a good question. Um, it just depends a bit where you got stung. There, there was a there was a guy who deliberately got himself stung all over his body to find out which were the most painful parts. <laughs> a guy called Schmidt, um, mm. and uh, the tip of the nose was one of the most painful parts. There was one other part Ooh. that I won't mention, but I'll leave you to work out what that might have been. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, one can only imagine. Um, and and, and yeah. la- la- lastly, uh, R- Professor Coulson, um, intensive agriculture uh, seems to be having a significant impact on, on, on bee populations. What can be done to minimize this threat for bees? Yeah, I mean, the nice thing is, <coughs> excuse me, um, we can all help. Uh, we've got, if you're lucky enough to have any kind of garden or outdoor space, and grow some bee-friendly flowers. There's lots of advice out there. My YouTube site has lots of advice on the best flowers for bees. Mm-hmm. And even just a few herbs in pots on a, on a balcony, if that's all the outdoor space you have, uh, will help. Um, but also there's other things you can do. You can join a local, ca- or start a local campaign to persuade your local council to do more for bees, plant flowers in the parks, not cut the grass so often, leave the road verges. Uh, to flower, things like that. Vote for green politicians, buy organic food. There's there's lots of small mm. ways that we can all do our bit to help. Mm-hmm, most certainly. And uh, sorry, I know I said lastly for the last question, but but just one more thing, um, because it is related to this as well. There there was a movie. Uh, it was a kids movie. I think it was either Disney <laughs> or Pixar, um, by the name of Bees as well. Um, and uh, for for the benefit of our listeners who don't know, um, do you? Uh, w- what's your take on this? If there wasn't any bees, uh, or if bees stopped to uh, stopped working, what would be? Um, what would the world look like? Uh, it would be an absolute catastrophe if we were to somehow lose all of our yeah. uh, bees. Um, I, I should just quickly mention bees aren't the only pollinators. There yeah. are other insects that yes. pollinate, but but between them. Um, 80% of all the plant species in the world need pollinating by some kind of insect, often a bee. So, you know, four-fifths of all the plants on the planet would disappear because they wouldn't be able to produce any seeds. And three-quarters of the crops we grow in the world um, wouldn't give a good harvest. Mm. Just today, the UN said we've just reached eight eight billion people on the planet. That's a lot of mouths to feed. Mm. We just couldn't feed everybody uh, you know bees pollinate um, apples strawberries blueberries squashes tomatoes chili peppers there's a really really long list of things that depend on them for pollination um, so that you know the horrible truth is actually people would starve if we if we didn't look after these little creatures so uh, uh, we should we the fact that they're in trouble is is really worrying and we should all be keen to do something about it most certainly, most certainly, beautifully put there. Uh, thank you, uh, Professor Dave Coulson, for being with us, for answering our questions, and uh, we hope you have a wonderful day ahead as well. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. That was Professor Dave Coulson, uh, who is a professor of biology at, univer- at the, the University of Sussex, specialising in bee ecology. He's uh, published more than three hundred and fifty scientific articles on the ecology and conservation of bumblebees and other insects, plus seven books, including the Sunday Times bestsellers, "A Sting in the Tail," "The Guard Jungle," uh, uh, "Garden Jungle," sorry, and uh, "Silent." 
Island Earth as well. Golson founded the Bumblebee Conservation Trust in 2006, a charity which has uh, grown to 12,000 members. Um, and in 2015, he was named under uh, a number eight in BBC's Wildlife Magazine's list of the top 50 most influential people on the conservation. Uh, we're going to be going straight to our next guest for the show. We do have with us on the line, Anne Rowbury. Um, after a career including instructing outdoor pursuits in Yorkshire, teaching in Singapore, gaining uh, a, a master's in education at Bristol uh, University and a diploma in counselling at Reading University. Anne Rowbury uh, moved from teaching to work for a charity involved in sustainable agriculture in Africa it was uh, th- uh, it was then uh, she she got her first hive and with uh, Ted Hooper's book in one hand investigating the boxes she joined a club and increased her knowledge working through the BBKA modules microscopy uh, microscopy and uh, husbandry exams to gain the master uh, beekeeper qualification she now has around 20 hives enjoying teaching uh, beekeeping to pupils at a local school where she maintains an observation Hive. Uh, she was elected as a trustee and uh, served as chair before becoming the British Beekeeping Association president. Um, as- uh, Anne Rabri, Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me on. You're welcome, and thank you for being with us. Um, like like I mentioned in the introduction as well, you've been a beekeeper for 12 years and run 20-plus hives. Could you tell us uh, and our listeners a little bit about the, uh, uh, about this and what, what makes you so committed to developing beekeeping and improving bee husbandry? Well, to start with, I started with two hives, and any beekeeper who starts with two hives they very rapidly increase. Mm-hmm. They draw you in, you get totally absorbed in what the bees are doing, want to find out more, and also um, sort of sharing it with others. And by going to a beekeeping club, and British beekeepers have uh, a lot of clubs all over the country, which you can source on their website, um, mm-hmm. you actually can learn a huge amount about bees. There is so much to learn. We learn sort of just sitting there watching them it's calming it's helpful to actually be able to get away from the world the bees themselves they produce the honey they bring it back they produce the nectar i should say and um, create the honey which we take there's a lot of things we can do with that microscopy we can look at the bees it's just you know an absolute minefield and uh, one of the things i loved as well was actually looking at the pollen that the bees bring in. It is fascinating. And once you get into that, you're absorbed into the world of bees. Hives increase very rapidly and your time actually disappears. And I wanted to give back to beekeeping something of the joy that I've had for the last 12 years looking after them. I've always been interested in in, in bees and insects. But um, it was wanting to give back something and therefore learning how to actually keep bees healthy, keep them well, and keep bees at a good temper, which is very good for our our, our neighbours. I, I think that um, basically bees are wonderful. We need to actually realise also how useful they are. I think Professor Gould was mentioning how important pollination is in the world and how how little choice we'd have in the food we ate if we didn't have bees. Yeah, very true. Uh, could you tell us um, why do bees produce honey? 
how 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 does that work? How can they do this? Okay, um, basically, why do they produce honey? Bees um, are a social community that takes their um, their colony through a winter, so they have to be able to feed through mm -hmm. that winter. They go through and they use um, they use a sort of ball-like structure, a bit like penguins do, to keep warm during the winter. So they cluster uh -huh. on a frame, but they must have food nearby. And so they collect it during the spring and summer and store it in the hive so that that will take them through the hive, through the winter. Whether they're sort of bees are out in the wild or bees are actually being kept, they, they collect a lot of honey. They collect far more than they need usually. And so beekeepers can take a percentage off their hive mm -hmm. without harming them. But we often then have to, you know, actually supply it um, a substitute food how do they collect it well um, bees are incredible they are a community that we are still learning about how they communicate with each other and uh, how they actually locate things but they go out to a flower and uh, they will suck up the nectar from that flower and bring it back to the hive uh, in their honey sac, which is separate mm -hmm. from their digestion, so it's not coming out of this sort of major um, digestive system. It is then regurgitated several times, placed into hives, and one or two things added to actually um, help it to move from being honey into, uh, sorry, being nectar into honey. If they stored it just as nectar, it would go moldy and it wouldn't go through the, the winter. So what they do is they actually drive off the water so it becomes less than 20%. They add one or two um, things that they, some of which we don't even know what they add, we're still discovering. Mm -hmm. Then they cover it with uh, wax, which they produce in the wax glands, and it's sealed, and that honey can then keep until it's needed. Um, I do believe there was honey found in the pharaoh's tombs in Egypt, which uh, was still actually recognisable as honey, so it's absolutely incredible. Um, it's a pure substance, which uh, pure in terms of it is a natural uh, substance produced by the bees, and it has so many good effects for us, not just enjoying it on toast, but actually being able to use it in medical situations as well yeah. so bees do produce a huge amount that we can actually um, uh, use and it's so valuable but we're still discovering so much I think um, you may have had Lars Chitter on um, actually talking about how bees can actually count they can see colour yeah. they can actually they can actually use dances within the dark in their hides that will tell the other bees in or the other foragers, which are all female, um, the foragers, they're the older bees that go out collecting the nectar. They can actually come back, they find a good source, they'll actually be able to tell the other bees in the hive where the source is exactly. And those bees could go out an hour later and still be able to find that patch of flowers that that bee came back with. It does actually, the bees do bring back um, sort of samples and give them round the hive if they've got a really um, good
good source and encourage other foragers to go out and say, hey, I've got a really good source. We need to really go and um, bring back as much as we can from there while it's still uh, flowing. Because flowers give out nectar at different times of the day, so and different flowers give out different amounts, which is why if you go to get a jar of honey, you'll find that actually sometimes they're all different colours mm, uh, yeah. to do with the, the actual um, honey that they're collecting, the nectar that they're collecting from the, hu- the hive, the uh, plants, I'm sorry, the flowers. Yeah. Um, absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so interesting, isn't it? It's fascinating to see how uh, bees work and how they communicate with one another and, and all of these other things like that you mentioned as well. Um, and, and the benefits that we can r- receive from honey are, are on a whole nother level as well. Um, there's just so much to, to talk about as well. Um, but, but unfortunately, that's uh, all the time that we have for uh, today. Uh, thank you, uh, Anne Rabri. Can, can I mention one yeah, thing? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Please, please yeah. um, have a look on the British Beekeepers website and um, it's bbk.org.uk and please sign the petition that is asking the government to help us. Yeah. Sure thing. We yeah, want no, no. the names of the countries on the labels. That's all. So you know, please sign our petition. Yeah. If you can just repeat the 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 website for the benefit of our listeners, please. It's bbka.org.uk, and it's got a QR code on there that you can just uh, follow, or you can actually just take the um, the petition website, and the petition is about honey labelling. You mm-hmm. can even go onto the government site and find it. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for that. And, and, and I'm sure many of our listeners uh, will head over and, and, and do that right now as well. Thank you once again. And That's we hope brilliant. you have Thank a wonderful day ahead as well. And you. I hope you have lots of honey as well. Okay. <laughs> Thanks very Thank much. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Bye-bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. That was Anne Rowbury. Um After a career including instructing outdoor pursuits in Yorkshire, teaching in Singapore, uh, gaining education in Bristol University and um, uh, Reading University, uh, she moved from teaching to work for a charity involved in su- sustainable agriculture in Africa, um, where she got her first hive and now she has uh, a 20 plus uh, hives as well. Um, we're going to be going to an audio clip that we have um, of when we spoke with Professor Lars Chitka um, who um, Anne just mentioned as well Um, she is uh, the author of the book The Mind of a Bee and a Professor of Sensory and Behavioural Ecology at Queen Mary College uh, of the University of London Uh, he he is also the founder of the Research Centre for Psychology at Queen Mary he is known for his work on the evolution of sensory systems and intelligence uh, using insect flower interactions as a moral system. Chitka has uh, made fundamental contributions to our understanding of an animal uh, of animal cognition and its impact on evolutionary fitness studying bumblebees and honeybees. Could you please tell us why you are interested in the evolution of cognitive capacities um, and the communication of bees? Of course. So Bees for us are a kind of model for just how much intelligence you can squeeze into how small a brain. So even though their brain is just a cubic millimeter in volume, they have remarkable learning capacities. They can count, they can recognize images of human faces. 
They can even learn to use tools. And all of these individual learning capacities have to be mediated somehow by a, the really tiny biocomputer that is the bee's brain. And so they are a model for us to understand how you can most efficiently wire up nerve cells to produce so much intelligence in a tiny um, microbrain. Their communication system is equally remarkable. So unlike any other animal, bees can communicate about locations using a kind of symbolic language by which inside the darkness of their hives, they can tell other individuals, other members of their colony, where they have found a food source, which direction and which distance they have located it. And they can do that without guiding other bees directly to the target, as let's say a primate might do, but they can actually pass on this information with what is called the dance language, where they display a kind of motor routine running around in repeated circles. And these movements encode the precise location of the food source that can then be memorized and decoded by other bees so that they can find it by themselves. So it's a really unique communication system that exists nowhere else in any other animal. So how were you, are you able to do all of these studies? Um, and how, how you know, was this um, research started, looking at you know, this behavioral um, repertoire and their amazing learning capacities? So bees are naturally good learners. So they first of all, of course, have to remember the location of their hive, their home base, because they are social animals and they can't survive without that social context. So if they lose their way on their large flights out, which might take them up to 10 kilometers away from their native hive, if they lose their way, they die. So they have to be really good at memorizing the location where they come from. And they also have to be good shoppers in the flower supermarket. So they have to, in any, in any bee's flight range, there might be 10, 20 or 30 different species of plants that all yeah. differ in their nectar qualities, their pollen quality. And they have to be able to locate those flowers that offer the best cost to benefit ratio. And then remember the advertisement that comes with these rewards. So whether it's the yellow flowers or the blue star-shaped ones or the red ones that uh, also reflect ultraviolet, they have to remember these signals that advertise the best rewards and then focus their foraging efforts on just that. And in the laboratory, we capitalize on these learning abilities. So whenever a bee gets something right, we always give it a little droplet of sugar water, just as they teach themselves in nature at flowers. And so we, we give them these little rewards to compensate uh -huh. them for their efforts. Yes, that sounds amazing. Um, that, um, so you yeah. say that um, bees can like, um, you know, look at, they are able to differentiate between some of these uh, um, flowers um, and um, the, the, you know, explaining the way that you're conducting this research. Um, so I would like to ask a question about your book um, in which, uh, which you call The Mind of a Bee. 
Um, and, you know, they says that um, these can recognize human faces. Um, so how does this work? So we again use the bees' natural learning abilities and their flexibility to associate almost anything with a sugar reward. So in this particular experiment, the bees are trained to land on a little platform in front of a, an image of a human face. And on this platform, they get a little droplet of sugar water. And the bee lands there a few times and learns to associate what's uh, next to the, the reward. And then we do a test, very much like a, a human crime witness test, so to speak. That is, we offer the face that was previously associated with reward and a few other ones, similar ones, but, um, but different ones also in the form of photographies. And in this case, there's now no reward. And of course, we shuffle the spatial position so they can't just go back to the place where they were previously rewarded. And then we ask, can you now pick the correct face? And indeed, it turns out that they can. With about 80% um, accuracy, they locate the correct face where they had previously received a reward. So what would be the um, real world or practical implications of this amazing um uh, discovery. So the bees naturally don't necessarily have to recognize human faces. This ability is just testimony to their intelligence and the remarkable flexibility with which they are able to learn about their environment, which goes way beyond just learning which flowers are rewarding. They, their intelligence is so flexible but they can even uh, deliver activities, cognitive abilities, that they would never have to use in nature normally, such as, for example, pulling a string to extract um, uh, an artificial flower from under a glass screen, which is traditionally an intelligence test that's been used for primates or corvid birds. And bees can learn that too. The whole point with such intelligence tests is to, fit, to confront an animal with something that no, none of his ancestors would have ever solved in their evolutionary history because we're interested in intelligent abilities where they really have to think in order to solve the task. And so while this particular kind of task, recognizing faces or pulling strings, might not come up in a bee's natural lives, of course, the flexibility of the intelligence that bees display there comes helpful for an infinity of problems that might occasionally come up in a bee's life, but which they have to solve by insight, by mental problem solving, rather than through trial and error or with um, any in-night behavioral routines. Well, thank you very much for joining us here in the Marcus Valley Station, Professor Lars. It was really interesting for you, you know, for you to share with us um, the amazing capabilities of the bees um, and the um, way that they're able to recognize faces as well as um, all the other amazing, uh, you know, discoveries and research that you've done. And thank you very much for talking about your book, which is called The Mind of Bee. Thank you very much. 
That was uh, the interview that we had with uh, Professor Lars Chitka. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, he's the author of the book uh, um, The Mind of a Bee and a Professor of Sensory and Behavioural Ecology at Queen Mary College at Uni- of the University of London. Uh, he's also the founder of the Research Centre for Psychology at Queen Mary. Uh, he was sharing his thoughts with us. Um, and with that, just uh, just uh, quickly, Osman, um, uh, if you can just share maybe one or two things uh, when it comes to the healing properties of uh, of bees, and then we'll move on to um, the last segment for for the day as well. E- even if it's just maybe one or two things, uh, because I think the the show would be or the segment would be incomplete um, if we didn't speak about uh, about that. Uh, so I mean, or, uh, just uh, whilst um, uh, uh, it's just uh, uh, whilst we we wait for that as well, um, we can see that the the there's actually a narration. I, I think we'll just share that before moving on to this next segment. Right. Um, it's narrated from the time of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, because we can see that in the Holy Quran, it states that uh, honey is a is a cure for 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 diseases. Um, and for for mankind, and it said that there was a person who was suffering, and he came to the Holy Prophet. Um, his brother came to the Holy Prophet, and he was suffering uh, from diarrhea. The Holy Prophet told him uh, to give him honey. So the man gave his brother honey to drink. Uh, but he came back and told the Holy Prophet of Islam, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that he had made his brother drink honey, but the the diarrhea had actually got uh, worsened. Uh, on this, the Holy Prophet Sallam said uh, to give him honey. Uh, he gave him honey again uh, and came back and reported that, that it had gone even worse. Um, and the Holy Prophet's response was that uh, um, Allah the Almighty has told the truth, but your brother's stomach is telling a lie. So go and give him more honey. On this, he, he gave him more honey and then he actually recovered as well. Um, and uh, um, like I said, there's so many things, there's so many benefits that we can see from bee products like honey, pollen, beeswax, propolis, royal jelly, bee venom. Uh, but unfortunately, time has gotten the better of us and we have to move on to the next segment. Uh, maybe, God willing, we can speak about this in a bit more detail on another occasion, on another show. But for now, we're going to be going to our last segment for the day. Are you experiencing terrifying nightmares? Uh, well, if you are, the number for you to call is 0208 687 There's a recent study which highlights a new treatment for nightmares. Um, and the, the, the study has shown that by listening to sounds associated with uh, good memories and individuals' nightmares may be reduced or eased. Uh, according to a page on the University of Warwick's uh, website, an estimated 50 to 85% of adults have reported experiencing the occasional nightmare. And in this segment, we'll be further exploring this new research and also discussing um, what causes nightmares in the first place. But before we do so, uh, we're going to be going to our first guest for this segment to get uh, more of an insight into this. Dr. Lindsay Browning. Dr. Lindsay Browning is a UK-based uh, chartered psychologist, uh, neuroscientist, author, and sleep expert. She founded Trouble Sleeping in 2006 to help companies and individuals with better sleep. Uh, Dr. Browning's uh, qualifications include two degrees in neuroscience and psychology and also a doctorate from the University of Oxford where she specifically studied the treatment of insomnia. 
Sorry, uh, she's an associate fellow of uh, the British Psychological Society, a member of the British Sleep Society and a member of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Dr. Browning has also written the self-help sleep book, Navigating Sleeplessness as well. Um, Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show, Dr. Browning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And thank you for being with us. Um, We're speaking about a very interesting topic. um, And the first question that we would uh, uh, like you to answer, uh, please, is uh, if you could tell our listeners a little bit about your self-help book, Navigating uh, Sleepiness, um, How to Sleep Better and for Longer. And if you can also share some some of your top tips uh, from there as well, please. No, absolutely. So, yeah, so I was asked to write the book um, just at the beginning of COVID, actually. And it's... uh, Mm -hmm. It's a, a very easy read about how to improve your sleep when you're not sleeping well. And I would say that you know a couple of the top reasons people give me for not sleeping well is that they have a really busy mind. So as they go to bed or they wake up at three in the morning, their mind is racing. So it's how you can turn your mind off. And, uh, and my top tip for that would be that the reason your mind is so busy when you're trying to go to sleep or in the middle of the night it's because you've got things to think about, really. So mm. it's really about making time during the day to write down anything you're worried about or make a to-do list for the next day, to deliberately make time to do that thinking during the day so that your brain isn't overloaded and trying to help you out by doing it in, you know, in the middle of the night. Um, yeah, and the book is also explaining about anxiety and sleep because that's another major reason people don't sleep. If they're stressed, they've got an exam tomorrow or an important work meeting, obviously you don't sleep. So that's why relaxation strategies to help you calm down your body and your mind relax um, can really help sleep as well. So that's what the book's all about, really, how to improve your sleep. Mm-hmm. And uh, could you tell us uh, something about nightmares? What? What's... Yeah, absolutely. So nightmares, everyone dreams, everybody dreams, even if you don't remember dreaming. I promise you, you dream. It's just that we only remember dreaming if we wake up from, uh, from having a dream, from dreaming sleep. But mm-hmm. nightmares are negative dreams, you know, unhappy dreams, stressful, scary dreams. And we have dreams about all sorts of different topics. But if the dream is really scary or emotional or very difficult, then we often will wake up in the middle of the dream because it's just frankly too scary and we're, and we're emotionally upset by it. So we wake up out of the dream. And our dreaming sleep, the whole purpose of it really um, is to help us practice for what we're doing during the day. So our dreams are often about things that we, we've, we've done or we're, we're going to do or we're worried about doing. Like a common dream is being chased by somebody or turning up for an exam and you forgot to revise. And um, our dreaming sleep is our brain's way of, of practicing and giving us experience of the situations that we might experience so that we can kind of practice doing it and how we might cope with it. And nightmares are just that to an extreme where it, it's so bad, it's so difficult, so scary that we we wake up and those recurring dreams will happen about the same topic again and again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how can you escape this loop? Sure. So, um, so first of all, the PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder is where if someone's experienced maybe a car crash or something really terrible happened to them, then they will struggle to deal with that after the event, PTSD. And often in that, we'll have recurring nightmares about the same incident again and again. So if you were in a car crash, you might keep dreaming about being in the car crash. Mm-hmm. And how you can improve those, un, you know, those unpleasant dreams and stop them happening is basically by um, 
fixing that dream, sort of coming to terms with it. So some therapy during the day, a little bit like I mentioned earlier with the writing things down, writing down your worries. If you talk yeah. to a therapist or you write down about what happened to you, it can help you sort of process and deal with that trauma during the day so your brain isn't doing it at night. But there's another thing called, um, it's got a various n- names, but like the dream completion technique, uh, which helps you to take control of your nightmares by practicing them during the day. So what, what it is, you think about the last bad dream that you had, um, say it's being, you're being chased by somebody, and then during the day you think about that dream, but then you change it to be something pleasant. Instead of, oh no, I'm scared and I'm being chased by somebody, you, cha- you change it to, well, I'm being chased by somebody, but they turn into a friendly puppy, and then the puppy comes and licks you and... And there's chocolate and flowers and balloons. And, you know, mm. you just change it into something really silly. And, and you have to do that when you're awake. awake. Yes, absolutely. So you practice doing that during the day when you're awake. You just sort of, you're teaching your brain how to change the dream. And then when you're asleep, your brain, because you've kind of started forming those memories, those neural pathways during the day, when you're having the bad dream, it, the idea is that it will automatically sort of flip into the happy part instead of sticking with the unhappy, scary dream. Mm-hmm. And lastly, uh, can you please tell us, our listeners, about the services you offer at uh, Troubled Sleeping? Yeah, sure. So I help individuals, so people who are struggling with their sleep, with um, either insomnia or just unable to, to get good quality sleep. And I also work with lots of companies and organizations to offer better sleep workshops and um, seminars, webinars, that kind of thing. So anything sleep, really. And I'm on um, social media um, at Dr. Browning Sleep, so DR browning sleep you can follow me if you want to uh, learn more about sleep mm-hmm. awesome Great. Um, thank you for that uh, and, and for, for, for answering our questions and, and sharing your insight in regards to this uh, this very interesting topic um, thank you once again and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead thank you thank you thank you bye-bye. bye bye Zero zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. That was Dr. Lindsay uh, Lindsay Browning, um, who is a UK-based chartered psychologist, neuroscientist, uh, author, and sleep expert, uh, expert as well. She founded Trouble Sleeping in two thousand and six to help companies and individuals with a better sleep. Um, and her qualifications include two degrees in neuroscience and psychology, and also a doctorate from the University of Oxford, where she specifically studied uh, tr- the treatment of insomnia. Um, we're going to be going straight to our last guest for the show. We do have with us on the line Professor Tom Stoneham, um, who's a professor of uh, philosophy at the University of York and a research affiliate of the Complex Trauma Institute. His research on dreams and dreaming has been used in the development of novel therapeutic interventions for nightmares and flashbacks suffered by people with complex trauma. Um, Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. Good morning, and thank you for being with us today. Um, we're speaking about nightmares in particular um, and how the, the new study um, uh, highlights uh, a, a, a new treatment for nightmares as well. But the first question that we wanted to ask you was, why is the topic relevant to the philosophical, uh, philosophical realm and what have philosophers proposed thus far? Wow, great question. Thank you. Well, I mean, the, the thing about philosophy is it tends to take very familiar things and ask unfamiliar questions about them. And my interest in dreaming was uh, triggered by thinking about, it's, it's quite puzzling that we dream at all. We're, we're asleep. 
Mm-hmm. What what's going on in this process? And I actually mm-hmm. found that the first philosopher I found asking that question was um, the Arabic philosopher Al-Ghazali about 900 years ago. And he said, you know, if you never had a dream, you didn't know about dreams, mm-hmm. and someone pointed to a sleeping person and said, oh, that person's experiencing the wind in their hair as they fly over a mountain and now they're diving down into a deep blue sea and swimming. You'd just think they were crazy. Yeah. That person's asleep in mm. rainy Yorkshire at the moment. <laughs> so there's something something odd about dreams. Uh, we've, because we have them, and almost all of us have quite a lot of dreams, we don't notice how odd it is that something like that is going on. And that's, I think, what the philosophers want to get into, is that idea that there's something very odd about dreams. Um, there have been lots of views over over time people have kind of thought well dreams must be important they must be significant so people have thought there might be messages from gods or spirits mm-hmm. um, some dreams seem to tell you about the future so people have thought well maybe something like that is going on um, actually the the founders of modern medicine in ancient Greece uh, people like Galen and Hippocrates thought that um, dreams were told you about your bodily health that you could work out what was wrong with someone by asking about their dreams. And I think more recently, in the last 120, 30 years or so, we've tended to think dreams tell us a lot about our mental health. So there have been lots of different views about the meaning and significance of dreams, but they're, they're kind of fundamentally puzzling phenomena. And I don't think anyone has really cracked that. Scientists nowadays think a lot about the function of dreams, no consensus, and but they tend to think of the mind in this very computational way, and then they think, well, is there some sort of computational function of dreams? Is it something to do with consolidating memories? Or, and that's a very distinctively 21st century way of thinking about dreams, which is premised on the idea that it, it must be a bit like a computer doing something. Um, and I think, you know, personally, I don't find any of those particularly satisfactory ways of understanding this phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you like to enlighten our listeners on your cultural social model of dreams, please? Yeah, sure. So what what I've been thinking about is um, you can split dreams into two things. What triggers them? What What is it that causes you to have a dream at all? And what is it that determines the content of the dream, what you dream about? And you, if you separate those two things, then you can notice that what we dream about has lots and lots of different causes. Um, So, you know, obviously, um, sometimes we dream about things which are current obsessions, things that we're thinking about. They can be very mundane. You can dream, oh, did I remember to send that email? You can, Mm. that sort of very minimal worry dreams. You can have dreams related to traumatic experiences. But also, if you look more carefully, The content of dreams seems to be heavily influenced by social and cultural phenomena. Um, There was this very strange uh, period in the first half of the 20th century when uh, psychologists were uh, doing questionnaire-based research on dreaming, and they got this consistent result that people said they dreamed in black and white, and very few people dreamed in colour, only around about, well, it varies from study to study, but around about 20% of people reported dreaming in colour for a period of about 50 years. And then people started reporting dreaming in colour again. And you can all guess 
what the correlation is there. Mm. Um, <laughs> so it looks like, you know, what people find in their dreams, what they tell you about in their dreams, all comes from, well, not all, but a lot of it comes from these social and cultural influences um, and expectations of what a dream is like and what a dream should be like and what dreams are worth telling and what dreams aren't worth telling. And then the other thing, of course, that seems to influence our dreams is what actually happens during the night. I don't know if you've ever had a dream where, you know, you uh, it ends with, with a police chase or something and there's a siren, mm -hmm. police siren, and you suddenly wake up and realize that a police car's actually driven past outside your house. And you think, how did my dream build up to that? Clearly that sound influenced what happened in your dream. And so those sorts of things have influence our dreams people have for thousands of years people have noticed that um, if you're hot you're more likely to dream about things which uh, involve heat um, if you've got certain sorts of pains or discomfort those will come into your dreams so all these things factors seem to influence the content of dreams and I guess what I, I'm trying to to suggest in my in my own work is that most of the content of dreams is effectively made up in the retelling. That when we think we're recalling dreams, what most of what we tell is actually not recollection. Have you ever had the experience of déjà vu? Yeah. When you, yeah, yeah, yeah great. Many well, times. yeah, lots of people have it, and that really feels like a memory. Mm. <laughs> Definitely, but it isn't. <laughs> yeah, and I think that. When, when we're recalling dreams, we've got that feeling of memory, but an awful lot of what we're talking about is actually a sort of story we're making up uh, mm -hmm. in that social context that we're in. That's amazing. So, so that's the idea. Yeah, so do you think that one can perceive surroundings while to sleep? So if so, how, how does this influence, your, how does that influence yeah. the dream? I mean, you can definitely perceive, otherwise alarm clocks wouldn't work if you couldn't perceive your surroundings. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but what's really interesting is how they affect, uh, I mean, literally for two and a half thousand years, people have been writing about how your surroundings affect your dreams. And we don't think about that enough in the modern world. Um, so if you're too hot, too cold, the light levels, even just the texture of the sheets, uh, ambient noises, all these things you're perceiving in the night. Um, and a lot of it you don't notice, you're, you kind of tune out to, but it's still there. I mean, mm -hmm. if you sleep, first time you sleep in a new house, you'll hear all those noises in the night, and they'll disturb you. And then once you've slept there a few nights, the noises of that house, you won't notice in the night. But if there's an unusual noise, you'll notice it. So. There's a sense in which you've been perceiving all those the whole time. And so one of the, if the those perceptions must influence your dreams because they're, you know, they're real genuine experiences that are going on during sleep. And it's quite a good way to, to think about things if you have, um, if you're troubled with distressing dreams or nightmares. Um, one of the first things you need to think about is are there any triggers in the night? Are there noises, changes in the light level, things that might be disturbing my sleep in a way that gets into my dreams? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
some uh, very interesting uh, uh, things that we've we've uh, seen and learned uh, f- learned from this uh, this discussion as well. Uh, unfortunately, we are coming up to the nine o'clock news now, so we, we, we we're going to have to stop there. But it, it was lovely speaking with you, um, and God willing, we, uh, we can we can touch on this uh, topic again in the future sometime as well. Um, I'd but, be delighted. Yeah, for for now, th- uh, thank you, uh, Professor Tom Stone, and for for being with us, for answering our questions, and sharing your insight into this uh, very interesting topic. Uh, uh, thank you once again, and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead. Thank you, and you too. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Bye bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you. That was Professor Tom Stoneham, um, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of York and a research affiliate um, of uh, the Complex Trauma Institute. His research on dreams and dreaming has been used in the development of novel therapeutic interventions for nightmares and flashbacks suffered by people with complex trauma. Uh, he was sharing his thoughts with us and some very interesting things that we can see from this. Um, just lastly, before we finish, the promised Messiah upon be peace um it has called the art of interpreting dreams a kind of mysterious art he, he disclosed a number of int- intricacies on the, uh, of this subject and said that the world of dreams is in a manner like the world to come the wonders that nature has sealed up in the dreamland and the mysteries therein and the manner in which these spiritual phenomena appear are similar to that of the hereafter. One might say that the dreamland is a kind of reflection or a photograph of the world yet to come. That is the reason why death and dreams have been spoken of as real, as real sisters, alike in their features, appearance, components and integral parts. The only way to have a glimpse at the secrets of the world to come about without the aid of inspiration and revelation is this source of the world of dreams. And it is therefore befitting for the wise and the thinkers, if they are keen on acquiring some knowledge of the happenings of the next world, that they must ponder and deliberate over the happenings in the dreams because the one wonders of the world to come are not unlike the world wonders of the dreamland just as the state of dreams is created after a strange change so are the conditions transformed in the hereafter uh, that's all the time that we have for you today stay safe be safe 